0: This is Al Getz. Welcome to an all-new episode of Charting the Territories. With me, as always, is my co-host, Mr. John Boucher. John, how are you on this fine August day? I understand you've got some hurricane threats coming your way. Hello, Al. Hello, listen. Yes. French. A French hurricane. Henri. Henri. Hurricane wow. Well, if it's a French Henri. hurricane, you've got nothing to worry about. Those guys are I plissons. know. I, I
1: was like... I was thinking about that, like, earlier today, you know, when I was preparing for the hurricane by just making sure I had enough tuna, um, who, Pascal or whoever at the National Weather Service really should have rethought this and gone with, like, Henry. Because think about
0: Henry. Or Klaus. The guy's named, like, he, like Go with know, the German like, name. That would really scare the shit yeah. out of some people, especially in New York. Or even – Yes. Oh,
1: yeah. Or even just not not Henri. Just go with with Henry. I mean, you guys like Henry Rollins, Henry Lee Lucas, uh, Henry Aaron, H- Henry Kissinger. All these guys who are intimidating in their specific fields of work would be more threatening than Henri.
0: Our Our three French listeners have just tuned us out, John. We have already we've (laughs) been on the air about a minute. We've already offended a significant portion of our international audience, so that's great. I'm I'm all for offending people. Certainly, uh, uh, other folks on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network seem to make a, a good living out of doing that. So you know why not? But. Uh, You know, normally these episodes go about 90 minutes. Uh, I'm pretty sure this episode won't go much longer than that, but we do have a hard stop time if we go super long, because we are recording this on uh, Friday night, August 20th, the night of the first dance, perhaps the most anticipated professional wrestling television show in eons. John, will you be tuning in to the first dance tonight? The first dance, what channel is the first dance on? Oh, oh you know. goodness. Apparently, I guess we have our answer. It is on uh, the, the Turner Network television. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I can, <laughs> yeah, I can do that. I can watch yeah, it. You I will, have no will, idea will, what I'm talking about, that. do you? This is I'll, how. What is the first dance? This, so tonight What's is uh, allegedly the long-anticipated return to the professional wrestling of CM Punk. Oh, yes, yes. I didn't know there was a name. Yes, they called they they when they announced this show for Chicago, they gave it a special name. They called it The First Dance, as a play oh, on the Chicago Bulls uh, documentary from last year, The Last Dance. Yes, yes. Whereas that, that was the something. end, well, this I'm... is the beginning. Um, Oh, I see. Very clever. Yeah, I'm going to be watching that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's going to be the most anticipated episode of wrestling television since the Kareem Muhammad show. And we'll be talking about that (laughs) later because we are uh, going to go back in time, as we always do. Uh, We're going to look at the third quarter of 1977 in the McGurk Watts territory, where no matter your dietary preferences, there was a babyface wrestler that could suit your needs. Uh, Also, Dick Murdoch was once again the focal point of the territory, but this time as a heel. So we'll look at his role, plus some of the other top stars in the territory, and we'll dive a little deeper into the wrestling careers and non-wrestling lives of Ray Candy, a.k.a. Kareem Muhammad in later years, Carl Fergie, and Mike Hammer. We also have part two of an interview I conducted a few months ago with Gil Culkin, where Gil is going to talk about the circumstances leading to him and his father breaking away from McGurk and Watts in October of 1977 and starting their own territory. So we're covering the third quarter, which goes up through September. And right at the end of the quarter is when I guess the wheels are in motion for the Culkins to begin their own territory. We're also going to go back even further in time to 1964. And look at the fourth quarter where the spotlight is on the NWA World Junior Heavyweight Championship. The former champion, Danny Hodge, has just returned to the territory where he's chasing the new champion, Hiro Matsuda, in an attempt to regain the title. But, John, there's a twist. Mm. Yeah, we'll talk about that, plus take a closer look at two of the other wrestlers in the territory at the time, Dandy, Jack Donovan, and Ken Lucas. And of course, John and I will each name one new thing we learned this month, and we'll kick things off with Shit John Bought Me <laughs> off eBay. But first, I do want to mention the uh, passing of the assassin, Jody Hamilton, earlier this month, and actually in the span of just a few days, we lost Jody, Burt Prentice, Bobby Eaton, and Dominic DeNucci. Uh, the assassin had returned to this territory in the third quarter of 77. So it just so happens that we're covering a time period where he is a part of the territory. And the same thing sadly happened last month where uh, we were talking about 1981 and right after Paul Orndorf had passed away. Yeah. So uh, it, it's sad, but uh, this is one of the things that happens when you cover th- so many different time periods is it un- indubitably that some wrestler shows up uh, and gets their name in the news for uh, sad reasons. So the assassin, Jody Hamilton. John, what are your memories and thoughts on the assassin?
1: The I, First off, you really don't see Jody Hamilton on enough of those uh, best promo guys of all time or best heels of all time lists for me he's definitely like in my top 10 promo guys of all time fantastic promo you know that turn up your tv and shoo the chickens out of the living room um just the the angle the angle i remember him from the most is the one with dusty in florida where he did the el santo thing um it's just you know and it's, it's amazing what the mask did for him uh if you see photos of young Joe Hamilton. He looks like, you know, it's like a pro wrestler, but with the mask, it's just this incredible transformation from d- pure to pure evil and, and menace. And even in the later years, there, on the rare occasions where he'd see, you see him without the mask, he just looks like, you know, just looks like an anonymous, anonymously, you know, slightly heavyset older guy. But then you watch him do a shoot interview with the mask on, and I get worried for the interviewer, thinking like he's going to be
0: attacked with a chair by.
1: The assassin. It's the yeah. It changed everything. And talking incredible. about
0: his interviews, I think in a different way, but similar to how we talked about Roddy Piper, how his cadence and his phrasing was was not was very atypical for professional wrestlers. Yep. In many ways, so was the assassin. He he didn't talk like a, a professional wrestler did, but man, like E. F. Hutton when uh, Jody Hamilton talked when he had that mask I, on. And he was in front of a microphone. People listened. They did. Uh, also, uh, Bert Prentice passed away. Uh, in my days in independent wrestling, I actually had the opportunity to work for Bert. I was the office assistant for Music City Wrestling in the summer of nineteen ninety-eight. Oh, wow. uh, this was a full-time job in professional wrestling. I received a weekly salary. I will readily admit it was not a large. Weekly salary, (laughs) but between that and my website at the time, woo wrestling.com, I, you know, my entire income came from, from professional wrestling, but I actually moved from Asheville, North Carolina to just outside of Nashville. So from Asheville to Nashville, Um, but I lived in Lebanon, Tennessee. Uh, worked in the office for Burt. I was uh, at his home, uh, which was the office, uh, was in his home uh, five days a week. I went to several of the shows at night. I ran the Louisville Gardens. Burt didn't make the trip to Louisville, so I was sort of the office rep at those shows. And I learned an incredible amount about uh, formatting television tapings, uh, working on television tapings, and then also doing the post-production of TV. He would tape his TV weekly, On Wednesdays in a town uh, called Smyrna, Tennessee, at a venue called the I-24 Expo Center. I did color commentary along with Michael St. John uh, as the play-by-play. And the very next day, Bert and I would go to the TV studio to do the post-production on the TV show each and every week. So I Uh really got an incredible uh, experience under the learning tree of Bert Prentice. I was only Uh there for about four months, but I, I will tell you I learned an incredible amount from him. And I'm very sad uh, to learn of yeah. his passing. And then, of course, uh, the one that hit, I think, everybody really hard was Bobby Eaton. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. John, uh, your thoughts, memories about beautiful Bobby Eaton? There
1: was, uh, so many beautiful tributes to Bobby that I've either heard or read for everyone from Jim Cornette to, you know, an anonymous fan who stood behind him in line at a Winn-Dixie in the 80s once. Everybody has a story and there's a veritable laundry list of stories about Bobby Eaton to demonstrate his kindness, uh, his humor and his generosity. And I don't think like you're going to find a professional wrestler who was as well liked by everyone as Bobby Eaton, who was also as good and re- well respected for his in ring work as Bobby was. Uh, just a, it's a big loss, very very big loss. Uh, watch them, watch some more Bobby Eaton matches when you can. There's there's tons of them.
0: Absolutely, so many great uh, uh-huh. matches to watch on on the YouTube of Bobby Eaton, and of course a lot of the wrestlers we talk about over the course of the podcast. Uh, we're going to mention some YouTube clips. I think we're going to start uh, putting those out on Twitter after the podcast Mm. is released. So uh, we make references to a lot of different YouTube matches and we'll talk about them here on the podcast. And then either John or I, or both will tweet out over the the next couple of weeks, uh, some of these links where you can see the matches we talk about. And there's some great stuff. I mentioned the Kareem Muhammad show uh, (laughs) earlier and that, uh, and uh, there's some great Ray Candy footage. Uh, There's the, there's a whole lot of good stuff that can be found on YouTube. There's also good stuff that can be found on eBay. See what I did there, oh, yeah. John? You see that segue? <laughs> That's a good, train. man. I didn't even write that shit down. I just I, that just rolled yeah. right off. So note that for next. The month. opening segment is uh, shit. John bought me off eBay, where each and every month John is authorized to spend fifty dollars of my money, not Ben Stein's money, but my money to buy me stuff <laughs> off eBay, and we're going to do a live unboxing. And this month I have two items. Well, I have two packages. I don't know how many items are in each package. So uh, at least two items, but perhaps more. So we're going to start with a package uh, that came from a seller in Blaine, Minnesota. Hmm. Okay, And I have a uh, pre, I have pre, you know, unwrapped and pre-opened. All this stuff, so it should be a pretty smooth process. This is a this is a pretty small item. It's uh, put okay. up in a folded sheet of paper. There was a packing slip, uh, and now there's some cardboard. And we're going to take it out. And, oh, it's a business card for a realtor. But not just any realtor. Probably a guy no. who not only sold houses, but perhaps chopped down the wood to build <laughs> them with his axe. Because this is Larry the Axe <laughs> Hennig Realty. Uh, yeah. <laughs> located in Elk River, uh, Malacca, and Princeton, uh, which I believe are three huh? towns in Minnesota. So this is a business yeah. card for Larry the Axe Hennig for all your real estate needs in Minnesota. Oh, and... Uh, um, is it a... It's a playing card. It's a play... Now, I was, I was, yeah, okay, okay Now, the, now, the, now the- that I've actually looked at the back of it, Apparently it is from a deck of playing cards. So it's not a business card. It is a deck of playing cards. Well, it's just one card. Um, but yes, uh, instead of, you know, the typical, you know, black or blue or red, you know, decorations on the front of the card, he's got his uh Larry the Axe Hennig Realty. And John, do you know what card I got? No,
1: no. That's the I I, I had a question about this, you know, because I, I was wondering if it was a playing card. Yeah, or it's a business a plain card, card or both. Or both. Okay, Ooh, photo, it could be both. The it photo it just it just showed the one photo of the one side, like a vertically oriented business card. Right. Uh, That's what I thought it was.
0: But upon further inspection, okay. upon further inspection, on the back, it is the Jack of Spades. Oh. Hmm. Well, I'm going to Vegas for a Cauliflower Alley next month. Maybe I'll bring this with me and try and slip it in and a deck at the poker table. Yeah, Larry Larry the Realtor Henny, Larry the uh, Realtor Hennig. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, all right, that is great. I now, so 51 more and I will have the whole set. So in about four and a half <laughs> years, if John continues <laughs> to buy me that same item, I will get the whole deck. Now, the next item Add comes from a seller in Paragould, Arkansas. And believe it or not, Paragould is one of those towns on my list that when I went to the uh, Arkansas State Archives Last month, um, I was looking for some house show ads from there. Basically, Randy Hales had told me that both Paragould and Forest City were run in the Jarrett era. So this would be post-1977, approximately monthly. Now, of course, the problem with monthly shows, especially when it's not a Set schedule like the fourth Saturday or the third Tuesday or whatever, it's very time consuming to go and look through all that in the hopes of finding really a few. Uh, but I was able yeah. to find a few from Forest City. I'm not sure if I looked at Paragold because I was there, as we'll talk about later, primarily looking for Tex Arcana. And if you listen to the Stats 101 podcast earlier this month, you learned that I found about six years worth of weekly house show clippings from Texark Canada that had never been part of the uh, collective, you know, uh, wrestling historical archive nope. until now. Uh, oh, but no anyway, way. this item uh, is uh, wrapped in several layers of bubble wrap. So I also have something mm. to play with after the podcast <coughs> goes off the air. Uh, this <laughs> seems to be photographs of some sort. No, it's a CD and mm-hmm. it is not the best of Creed, nor is it the no. best of Nickelback. It is way much better than that. Oh, yeah. Jerry Lawler Sings. Yes. Uh, And it's it's autographed. Yes, it it is autographed, and it comes with a certificate of authenticity, which says, Congratulations, you you have received authentic hand side item from Jerry the King Lawler and is guaranteed to be real. So I got that going for me, which is nice. There's a...
1: Interesting, a lot of the musicians on here are, are pretty well known. Like, I think it's Jerry Patterson, the drummer, played with the, you know, Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs, you know, of Wooly Bully, Little Red Riding Hood fame. Uh, so, did like,
0: horns are on there? Yeah. Did Jimmy Hart I, probably help wrangle up some of these musicians, do we think?
1: Oh, uh, I. I would imagine, yeah, yeah, yeah. Memphis Horns are there, and they play on like "Sitting on Dock in the Bay" and "Let's Stay Together" by Al Green. They got like eighty something gold records. James Burton played guitar, and he played with Elvis during the TCB years. Everly Brothers, Johnny Cash, Merle Haggard, Roy Orbison,
0: and uh, Jerry just, you know, Lawler, and, he, and Jerry Lawler, <laughs> of course, yeah. So, uh, do we, are these originals? Uh, one well, of the songs is "Act Naturally," which I would could imagine could be a remake. "Good Hearted Woman" that's an yeah, a that, song.
1: Uh, yeah, Waylon Jennings too. "Act Naturally," yeah, Buck Owens, The Beatles, Heart of Stone, Rolling Stones. The rest I don't know. The rest I'm either not familiar with or those are originals.
0: Well, I will. So uh, least, I will pop this into the old CD player and give everyone a review next month on a podcast. That's awesome.
1: It is. It, it is, it is pretty good for as far as like wrestling, you know, the, the backing band is like a real, it's like Nashville session guys. Uh. So, and, and J- Lawler has a like, decent voice. It's like better. It's, 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 it's a very enjoyable record.
0: Good. I can't wait. So I'm excited. So I have a playing card and a CD from Larry, the Axe Hennig and Jerry, the King <laughs> Lawler. Thank you, John, for the shit you bought me off of eBay. Anytime. <laughs> So 1977, the third quarter of 1977 in the McGurk slash Watts territory. I I sort of call it the McGurk territory up through when Watts returns in 75, uh, because that's uh, even though he does have some uh, control over the booking in 71 and 72, I think it's not till 75 that he has a significant ownership stake In the territory. So from 75 on, I call it McGurk Watts. And then, of course, after September 79, there's two separate territories. There's Mid South, and there's the Tri State territory uh, run by McGurk afterwards. But in 1977, the main eventers, and these are based on average spot rating, which, of course, you can see on our blog at www.chartingtheterritories.com. The Top babyfaces uh, are Jerry Oates, Nelson Royal, Killer Carl Cox, Vic Rossitani, Bill Watts, and Porkchop Cash. Interesting to see Watts fifth uh, on the depth chart on the babyface side. Um, Again, he has made mention in his book that when Murdoch got really hot as a babyface, he was smart enough to know to step step back and perhaps. That's the case here, or perhaps it's just a matter of mixing things up for the time being. Uh, On the heel side, you've got Dick Murdoch, and then number two is Eric the Red. Number three is Skandor Akbar, then Hiro Matsuda, Stan Hansen, and the Medics. Uh, Royal and Matsuda are not here full time. They're just in for a few weeks and usually wrestling against one another for Royal's NWA World Junior Heavyweight title. Also interesting to note, both men were also here in 1964. And at that time, Matsuda was the Junior Heavyweight Champion. Royal was not In the title picture, I think he actually did end up having a couple of shots at Matsuda, but the main emphasis was Matsuda and Danny Hodge and a couple of others that we'll get to later. So again, uh, like I said earlier, when you do multiple time periods, you sometimes see the same people uh, years later. So 13 years later, both Nelson Royal and Hiro Matsuda are still (laughs) working the Oklahoma slash Louisiana circuit. Uh, Also, again, no matter what your food Preferences, you've got pork chop cash, you've got Jerry Oats, and a little bit further down the card, if you're looking for something sweet, you've got Ray Candy. Yeah, baby. So what is, what is your preference among those three items? Are you a meat lover, a sweet lover, or an oat lover? I'm not talking <sighs> you know, about I'm the wrestlers, to, I, I'm talking I, about the food.
1: I, I have a physical next month, so I'm going to go with oat go with the, oats. stay, stay healthy, stay on the healthy side. All right. And then uh, of the
0: three, do you have a preference of it as a wrestler? Are you a Jerry Oates guy, a pork chop cash guy, or a Ray candy guy? Nothing
1: against the other two, but I am a
0: fan of the candy man. I
1: mean, he can make,
0: he can take the sunshine and uh, (laughs) sprinkle it with joy or something. I don't even know. Yes. As Sammy Davis Jr. Sang um akbar uh, who we mentioned he had been managing full-time since being injured in march but he's more of a player coach at this time and he's wrestling most every night in particular he's got a series of singles matches against killer kyle cox in july and august and if you look at the roster on our blog you can see more of these who was feuding with who and who is teaming with who uh, with our frequent partners and frequent opponents metrics. Uh, I tweaked them slightly this month. I talked about this on the Stats 101 podcast, whereas in the past, they were just whole integers with a scaling that 100 could be the highest possible score if we had complete data, maybe, kind of, sort of. I've now tweaked that and turned it into more of a percentage based on how complete our house show records are at a given point in time, but also how many bookings each of the wrestlers in that feud or in that team had. So Hmm. 100% is an absolute possible high score. It's not, you know, a a estimated, you know, know, theoretical high. 100% is the absolute maximum you could get. And if you remember, these week-to-week scores are actually based on a uh, five-week weighted rolling period of time. So if someone has a frequent partner score of 100%, What that means is every time both of those wrestlers were booked for a five-week period, they were always teamed with one another. And this could be uh, not only traditional tag team matches, but also six-man. If they're uh, on a six-man with another person, they still get, quote-unquote, full credit for being teaming with one another. And then uh, the frequent opponent score, same thing. 100% means that in that five-week period of time, Every time either of the two wrestlers were booked, they were always booked against the other wrestler. And this could be in singles. This could be in tag teams. But also the other caveat with the frequent opponent score is that and it was always in the main event because the mm-hmm. frequent opponent score takes into account the position on the card so that if Igor Putsky happens to be wrestling Carl Fergie just to throw two names at a random a lot in the opening match. That's not going to show up. The idea is to try and capture who is facing one another, facing who regularly in important matches. So you can look at that on the blog, and you can hear more of me talking about that on the Stats 101 podcast, which came out earlier this month. And you can also learn a little bit more about Tex Arcana, Arkansas. Yeah. A little further down the roster, uh, there are a lot of newcomers to the territory this quarter, including not just one, but two Future husbands two. of Leroy's daughter, Mike McGurk. And John, those two future husbands were?
1: I know one of them was Brian Blair. Mm-hmm. Correct? Yes. And there's another?
0: And one. there's another. Knew, yes. Uh, I he, knew she was. Let's a, see. Is uh, he is a longtime BBC? tag team partner. No, that was a, well, he was a former uh, paramour of uh okay of mike mcgurk but no this is a man who's probably best known for being half of the most unlikely awa world tag team champions in history by teaming with everybody's second favorite wrestler behind terry funk playboy buddy rose doug Summers. yes yep wow Right, I did not. I wasn't aware of there.
1: I did not know that. Oh, yeah. Uh, One
0: one of the many stories about Leroy McGurk waving a gun and trying to shoot the wrestler (laughs) involved Brian Blair after uh, Mike had left Brian uh, for for Doug. Oh, Uh, yeah.
1: Not cool, but uh, I interesting story. Wow, interesting story. I didn't know the Doug. I didn't know he was involved in that. Yes.
0: Interesting. Uh, and I, I think, again, I don't know the particulars where we're off the cuff here, but I believe it uh, began while Mike and Brian were perhaps still uh, legally inter- intertwined. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, yes. O- only in pro wrestling. Uh, but yeah, in addition, yeah. as we mentioned earlier, Ray Candy comes to the territory. Ray debuted in August Of 1977, he starts out in the mid cards, but is clearly getting a push. And in the last two weeks of the quarter, so at the end of September, his spot rating crosses above a 0.80, which generally signifies main eventer status. And of course, he's going to main event a big show at the Superdome the following year against Ernie Ladd. But let's talk a little bit about Ray Candy. I was looking uh, at some info. You sent me an obituary from a, a news magazine in Atlanta. Uh, and it mentioned that he was a graduate of Booker T. Washington High School, which is here in Atlanta. He was born in Decatur, uh, but he graduated from high school in Atlanta. And just to give you an idea of, of uh, this area where he graduated school, the, his high school, Booker T. Washington High School, is less than a mile from three HBCUs, Historically Black Colleges and Universities. It's less than a huh. mile not only from Clark Atlanta University, but also Morehouse College and Spelman College. Um, he grad- so he graduated from high school in Atlanta in 1971 and he starts his pro wrestling career early in 1973 wrestling for Ann Gunkel just a couple yeah. of months after Ann split from Georgia championship wrestling. Uh, and he stayed with Ann through the end of her territory, which was November, 1974. He then goes and works for Goulis and then he goes to Georgia championship wrestling. Uh, and then he has stints in Amarillo central states. And in central states, he is, uh, in most ads, he's simply listed as candy man, as opposed to, yeah. you know, quote, 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 unquote, candy man, right? Candy. He is just the candy man. And then he goes to Florida, uh, before coming here. And, and John, something I didn't know about that you pointed out to me was, um, at w- in one of the obituaries uh, that Dave Meltzer wrote, he said that candy started his career using the ring name Gorilla Watts as a rib on Cowboy Bill Watts, who was booking for Georgia championship wrestling during the war. And that is not correct. No. Um, Gorilla Watts is a different wrestler. He was originally known as Sweet Daddy Watts. His real name was TJ Henderson. He's a 5'10", 400-pounder, originally from Paducah, <laughs> Kentucky. Uh, so, you know, again, one of those minor correcting, correcting the info and, and John, how we know, uh, beyond an absolute shadow of a doubt that they could not have been the same two people was because you sent me something, John. So, uh, real quick, what did you send?
1: Yeah, I found, I was wondering about that, that what I've sent you that, that fact. And I found a, a clipping of them tagging together with, yeah. I think I forget who the third man was, maybe Ernie lab is like a uh, six man no, match and it was Charlie. Cook. Yeah. Ernie lab was the ref. That's right. Special ref. So and, yes, uh, as talented
0: uh, as Ray Candy may have been, he could not have uh, <laughs> assumed a second alter ego and tagged in and out to himself. That would be no. quite the trick. Uh, we yeah, talked it's, about. It's funny. we you know, good. Like we were talking about how it, it, was, it was
1: surprising to me how quickly he got put in that main event spot for Gunkel. And you made an excellent point that you know with a guy that size. You kind of have to give him that push there, especially after I think it was a Thunderbolt Patterson was their lead baby face. And he left abruptly, I think, to run opposition to the opposition, (laughs) you know, so that spot was open.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And he's a local guy, too. Yeah um yeah. and and yeah. they're you know they're in a war they are literally you know uh, running head to head in several markets against uh, the the establishment so yeah something new and fresh might be the, the thing to do and we've got some youtube footage like i said we'll post some links to these on twitter but first there's a match from all japan against terry funk And this starts out uh, with the ending of the match before it, which was Giant Baba losing by count out to a wrestler who I believe was called the Mysterious Assassin. John, do Do you know who who the Mysterious Assassin was? This is uh, early 1980. I think March 28th. I think that's our friend Bobby Jaggers, right? Yes, excellent. We didn't even plan that. I was going I was trying to no, stump my co-host. You see what a rotten, <laughs> what a rotten guy I am. I'm trying to stump my co-host live during a <laughs> no, podcast, that, and he zinged it. He knocked it right out of the park because I knew he would. That's um, why.
1: Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, thank you. yeah, The, 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 the opening is so hot. That, with the yeah, that's a hot fun.
0: opening, and then Terry Funk comes out, and they go right into Funk and Candy, and this is just a damn fight. <laughs> It's, 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 yeah.
1: Okay, I, I was watching this. And I'm like, a lot of the time, the Japanese matches from this era, where you have two American guys wrestling, just, uh, and there's not any particular history or a feud or anything going on. Sometimes there's not a lot to grab onto, aside from the novelty of like, oh, look, it's it's Bob Backlund versus Dusty Rhodes. That's cool. Just not a lot to grab onto, aside from that. Um, and not that there's anything wrong with that. There are none of those problems here. These guys are fighting before they're introduced, screaming at each other from across the ring. You can see Terry, like, mouthing, like, you no good son of a
0: bitch. And the crowd is super into it, just chanting, Terry, Terry, Terry. So good. A minor caveat, at this point in time, Terry was basically considered one of the Japanese wrestlers. I believe he usually teamed with the Japanese wrestler. So it's a little different, Um, but yeah, they love, they love them some Terry Funk. And I believe this was Ray's second tour for all Japan. So he had been there before, but this was the first night of the tour. So yeah, they ran this hot angle where they just, you know, Baba, you know, loses by count out, which was something I don't believe happened very often. And to segue Mm -hmm. that right into this fight between Terry Funk and Ray Candy, uh, of course, in later years, Candy would uh, get up there in size uh, and yeah. John, you, you sent me an article from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution from April 1983, uh, where they list some of the top stars uh, of, of the local yeah. wrestling. And uh, next to Ray Candy, they say he is the idol of obese fans, gets crowd on his side when bad guys ridicule him for being fat. Yeah,
1: yeah. And he was a, baby, he was a baby face, face Yeah. Time. It's like, no wonder he did the... Zambui Express
0: thing. That's that's what he's getting as a baby. Uh, yeah, he's oh, probably okay. based in reality. And, uh, yeah. So talking about the Zambui Express, I got to tell you, as a teenager watching wrestling, I I loved this team. I thought Me they too. were they were great. And Me too. I, I really think that Love one them. of the things I liked about it was the fact that Zambui isn't a real word, and I yes. always believed that this was intentional. Uh, I kind of think similar to years later, the TV show uh, Twenty Four with Kiefer Sutherland at one point they started getting flack from middle eastern countries that were always represented as the bad guys on the show so i think one season they actually made up a country and had them be you know the <laughs> bad guy so i always thought that this was just a made up uh, term and in later years i've i've read things that might that Might lead to something else. So I've heard that they were supposed to be called the Zimbabwe Express, but that during a TV taping, Blackjack Mulligan butchered the name and they just went with it. John, have you heard Um, this? Do you know if it's true? I've heard that
1: story. Don't know if it's true. A hundred percent. It sounds like something that Blackjack Mulligan would do, though. I'm sure he had up to that point never said the word Zimbabwe. (laughs) but I'm sure he has referred to, you know, get me that Bowie knife Barry, (laughs) you know, I'm sure he's, I'm sure he said the word Bowie in, in in terms of like a Bowie knife. So I could totally see that happening. Um, So yeah, just like, 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 just like
0: Sylvester Ritter was mistakenly introduced as Leroy Rochester and they just went with it. And, uh, Bobby star was introduced as Ron star in Florida. And he just went with that again, a, uh, A mistake leads to a legendary name, but yeah, I loved the Zambui Express. We've got uh, a YouTube clip of a Falls Count Anywhere match with uh, Candy as Kareem Muhammad against Blackjack Mulligan. This is taped in the uh, the the TV studios in Florida, and it goes outside the building. John, this is a this is a wild this is a wild scene for 1983 84 Florida TV. They're outside. There's like they're pulling stuff out of the pickup truck. There's a lady with a baby jumping up and down. Yeah, she's holding the and baby yelling. and she is
1: far too there's
0: close a baby. to the action to be holding a baby. Yeah, I was. Oh, it's I great. I love it.
1: And they tie Blackjack to a telephone pole and beat the crap out of him. It was like a snuff
0: film at the end. It's crazy. Yeah. And there's it like, like their manager, to... their manager, Jim, Jim Holiday, right? Gentlemen gentleman, Jim. Holiday. Gentleman. Yes. Jim holiday Excellent. in the, in the era yeah. where each territory had at least three managers. It seems like in the early eighties managers were all over oh, the yeah. place. Not only do we have a Jim holiday reference, we're going to be talking a little bit about Tux Newman later on. Uh, Ooh. but there's an article uh, in the February, 1984 ish, uh, issue of wrestling's main event talking about the Zambui express and Jim holiday. And the fact that originally in Florida, the Zambui express had been aligned with Kevin Sullivan. Hmm. And then uh, Sullivan leaves the area. I believe they had a big uh, loser leave town match with him losing to Dusty, and so Jim Holliday takes it over. And in the in the magazine article, they allude to some sort of an alliance or agreement between Jim Holliday and JJ Dillon. But then the yeah. article quotes Dillon as saying he has no idea what they're talking about, and all he cares about <laughs> is Ron Bass. So was this the uh, the the magazine writing their own storylines?
1: Yeah, this was Napolitano, I think, just going, not we could ask going him. into yeah. business for himself. But yeah, we could. This We'll put it on Twitter. We'll yeah. ask him. That's neat. Out.
0: And the final YouTube clip involving Ray Candy is just uh, the most beautiful thing of all time. And that is oh uh, for uh, a brief few-week period of time, he was took over the Jerry Lawler show, the Jerry Lawler talk show yeah. in Memphis, and turned it into the Kareem Muhammad show. And his yeah, guests on this episode are Randy Savage and Tux Newman literally weeks before Savage goes to the WWF. I think this is June 2nd. And I recall I saw Savage in Madison Square Garden in late June of that year. Yeah, so this is... It's crazy, right? Yeah. uh, This is like the last,
1: his last thing on, in the, in the territories. And he
0: is, uh, you know, he is just, I mean, he is Randy Savage. This is, you know, this is a fully formed version of what would, you know, we would (laughs) see in the WWF. This was not, you know, a couple of years earlier, you see glimpses of it, but it's not all together. But here at this point in time, he's got it nailed down and you've got Tux Newman. Yeah. Yeah. So the the Kareem Muhammad show is on YouTube. And what's great about this clip is that it's the full uh, recording off TV. So it's got the actual, you know, commercials that were on the show as well, uh, which is always good uh, to watch for a nice trip down memory lane. Another newcomer, John, uh, in the territory in the third quarter of 1977 is someone who, depending on when and where you grew up, you either remembered as a Memphis wrestling mainstay or as a referee in Mid South slash UWF. And that is Carl Fergie. Yeah. So,
1: Al, I did some work on uh, Ancestry.com. Uh-oh. And I need, I, so you, uh, not about my own lineage. Oh, okay. Uh, someone else. Uh, this is about the. Uh, I, w- I was curious. I wanted to make sure I had the the Jerry Lawler family tree correct. So you can correct me here. So here's what I here's what I think.
0: Well, if you got it off Ancestry.com, your your stuff is probably more correct than what I have pulled. But let's compare notes. What you got?
1: Okay. So I have I have Jerry Lawler's mom, mother, uh, Hazel was mm-hmm. Hazel Hazel Fergie was her maiden name. Uh, died died in uh, 2011. Right. Uh, her brother. Walter Fergie. He was Gary Fergie, also known as the Pink Panther, and Carl Fergie's dad. mm mm-hmm. uh, And then Hazel's sister, Ellen Fergie. Which was also Walter's married, sister, but yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, married Roy Wayne Ferris Sr. and begat upon the world uh, the kisser, punk rock, punk rock Wayne Ferris, the honky-tonk man.
0: Yes, uh, that's that right that's true? exactly what I have. They yes. So nice. Hazel Hazel Lawler, Jerry Lawler's mother, had uh, two siblings, both of whom sired a professional wrestler, which makes all three first cousins to one another. Yep. 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 Now Carl. He wrestled for a while. Like I said, if you grew up in the Mid-South years in that area, you might remember more as a referee. I think uh, Cornette on one of his podcasts a while back mentioned that it wasn't a, a big thing. It was just Fergie had come back to the territory and Watts really didn't have anything for him as a wrestler and said, do you want a ref? And he said, sure. So, you know, it wasn't like he couldn't cut it and and was forced into this position. It was just, this is what's available. Do you want a job in wrestling? You got it. And he was happy to do it. But prior to that, he had never really strayed too far from home. Of course, he was mostly known for wrestling in Tennessee. He wrestled some in Texas. He wrestled some here. He wrestled some in Mid-Atlantic. He actually had two tours of Japan. And his first tour- was
1: crazy to see.
0: His first tour was the same one that uh, featured the Ray Candy-Terry Funk match we talked about earlier. And that was the first night of the tour. So while Ray Candy was wrestling Terry Funk, Carl Fergie's first match in Japan was against Jumbo Tsuruta. Wow. Talk about trial by fire. They threw him in. And his second tour a year later is with the IWE, uh, which I think is a sign that All Japan wasn't necessarily enamored with him. Um, and then he went to IWE, which by 81 was struggling and towards the end, I believe he's teaming up with Gypsy Joe on some of the shows there. Uh, but Carl has had two significant post wrestling careers, John. So tell our listeners about those. Two careers. I think so. Didn't he own a I gold know,
1: gym I too? Know about-
0: I didn't know about the Gold's Gym. Oh, I could be, very, me. I I know, could be I, very wrong. Hold on. I, if you hear some click, clickety clacking, that is me Googling this to make sure. But John, tell <laughs> us about the one that you are familiar with.
1: I know that currently, uh, he, you know, he, health insurance is his, his current business that he's in. He's, uh. You know, done just fine in life with with this. Uh, very active in social media. uses uses the hashtag Better Carl. Better call Carl on Twitter. Looks great. Happy, healthy. Uh, always very happy to report that a former wrestler is alive, happy and healthy. And if you live in uh, Jackson, Tennessee, or the uh, surrounding area and are in need of health insurance, uh, you know you better call. Carl. Better call Carl. Uh, and yes, there's a little was, free plug there.
0: He, for about 17 years, he was the membership director at Gold's Gym in Jackson, Tennessee. Wow. I did not know that. Uh, mm. And that might have been, he might have also been in the insurance game as well. The, the, those two jobs sound like things that that aren't necessarily 80-hour work weeks by themselves. Uh, so perhaps are yeah. uh, two careers. Uh, combined together. But yeah, like we, we love to focus on, I don't want to call it the light side of the ring, but more on the happy <laughs> side of the after, of after the ring. Uh, yeah, yes, yes. looking at wrestlers that have fulfilling, rewarding, uh, you know, uh, post-wrestling careers because sadly, we tend to hear about the opposite of those far too much And now, John, we've got some YouTube footage of Carl Fergie, and one of them perhaps is the beginning of some of the longest-term storytelling we have ever seen, (laughs) because in 1979 in Georgia, (laughs) Carl Fergie takes on a youngster who years later would be embroiled in a bitter feud with Carl's cousin, Jerry. So let's talk about Carl Fergie versus a young Bret Hart.
1: Oh yeah, this is probably like what like 79, late 79. Yeah, it's late so, late uh,
0: 79.
1: Brett's got I like that Brett has his knee, like his, his knee taped up for this and he's really selling it for the whole match, like limping a little bit. Um I thought that was a nice little touch. Either I thought it was either an an interesting touch for a 5-minute TV match or maybe it was a legitimate injury that that Brett was nursing. Um you know, after the match, you know, Brett wins uh, the crossbody
0: or something. And, after and that, the mat, I, Gordon, that surprised me. I, I didn't know too much about either man's role in Georgia in 79, but I was assuming that Carl would have been higher up on the food chain. It turns out they were probably both about equal. Hmm.
1: And uh, after the match, Gordon solely commends Carl for not going for the, the obvious leg injury on Brett. But Carl was doing all kinds of hair pulling behind the ref's back and stuff, which I guess Gordon chose to, to ignore
0: But he didn't go the extra step. And what's interesting in looking at Brett's run there in Georgia, he's not there very long, but in addition to this match with Fergie, another opponent who he would have uh, some issues with later on in life. uh, He faced a young Sterling golden in Georgia in 79. And of course, you know, there are the stories of Uh, uh, heat between Brett and Hogan uh, around the time of uh, the Yokozuna reign. Um, Uh. Some more, some footage from Memphis and you know, John, I always say on this podcast, when we're talking about Don Fargo or Chris Colt, I always say, in a business full with whack jobs, this guy was the wackiest job of all. So yeah. as much as Memphis is known for having the most batshit crazy, ridiculous stuff, 1987 Memphis might have the most ridiculous batshit crazy stuff. But here we've got the commission which is Brickhouse Brown. Uh, I believe he stole Jerry Lawler's crown. and He runs around calling himself the prince. And he's got the commission, which consists of Carl Fergie as King Carl. Uh, King Carl, baby. The courthouse jester is downtown Bruno. Yeah. Um, during this footage, which is a match against Scott Hall, there's a vignette for a new tag team coming called the Knights of Darkness, which oh I, I don't even want to describe. But just trust me, you want to find this on the YouTube, you will laugh your ass off. But also, Don Bass is there as the singing cowboy. He is part of uh, Brickhouse Brown's ridiculous stable known as the commission and at one point don bass uh sends in a tape that purports of him to be performing live but he is so blatantly obviously lip-syncing to the bobby bear <laughs> classic drop kick me jesus oh, wow that's a lot to take in wow. oh, and by the way it's i think scott and- hall's first match in, on memphis tv
1: yeah, I think it's Memphis' debut, yeah. And the match is only about a, a, how long? Like It's it's barely a, barely a minute. There's
0: a couple a, minutes a before running. shenanigans ensue as uh, Goliath and Big Bubba, who are Moondog Splat and Fred Ottman, attack. Ah. And it turns into a big old schmazz. Hmm. So, but we mentioned Fergie. A lot of our listeners might know him as a referee. Uh, John, who are your favorite wrestlers slash referees? Ooh,
1: ah... Uh. It's, it, you know, the 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 referees who became wrestlers is really interesting. Like my 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 favorite, the most obscure one for me uh, is Dick Kroll, was the longtime WWF referee. Uh, he was there for everything from like Koloff beating Bruno at MSG to, you, you know, uh, Backlund losing the belt of the Sheik to the first WrestleMania he also refereed a lot of other promotions. You'll see him in Florida, Houston, all over the place. Um, and he actually started out as a wrestler. Uh, he was a former amateur collegiate wrestler. Uh, actually, just trained for professional wrestling by George George Stragos. Um, only wrestled for a couple of years, like 58 to 60. I have a, I have a program somewhere of him, actually, on the Sunnyside Gardens uh, card. Uh, he's my my, my my favorite, most obscure one, because not a lot of people know about his wrestling career. Uh, it was Nick Patrick, of course, Jody Hamilton's son. Uh, John Bonello. Do you know the John Bonello story?
0: I don't know the story. I know John Bonello, but I don't know. Uh, I, I Maybe I know Uh-oh. the story, but I don't know anything that would be the story.
1: Oh, he's a he was a prelim guy. He worked for Toronto, did Crockett TV, worked prelims uh, for the WWF once they broke in in Toronto and later became a, a WWF referee. Right. Uh, the story is that he later uh, hired a hitman to kill his wife. Huh. Uh, but the hitman was an undercover cop. Huh. Uh, so he was convicted. To, uh, 18 months in prison and community service, which kind of seems like a slap on the
0: wrist. Yeah, 18 uh, months for hiring a hitman. Was it no Brett Hart? Was maybe that his mistake? <laughs> he, he, he just said, he, he you know, he called up the wrestling office. He said, I need a hitman. They said, yeah, here's Brett's number
1: the original Toronto screwdrive. Uh, and, uh, he, he then I read that uh, later, his wife actually pled for leniency during his sentencing and blamed his actions on his drug and alcohol problems. And even, bizarrely enough, the two eventually did reconcile and get back together after he served a sentence, which is crazy. Um, of course they did. Last one I could think of is a uh, Jack Kruger, um, was a guy, uh, He was uh, Ali Hassan in Memphis. I think he was the drummer in the We Hate School video. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Was a Sheik Abdullah in Central States, and was later like a prelim guy for the WWF before becoming a ref. He always, you you, you can't think of him off the bat. He always looked angry and disheveled. Um, Like, do you remember the Nickelodeon show? You can't do that on television. Of course. Um, The one adult on the show, Les Lie, who played Barth.
2: Uh-huh. and, and all the so.
1: he, he was the adult male character he sort of reminds me if less lie from you can't do that on television was playing a referee that's what this guy huh. sort of looked like
0: well i remember yeah, sunny sunny yeah some early or sunny fargo some early uh, early referee of fred platt in uh, the mid 70s in the mcgurk territory was a young uh yeah. Aurelian Smith Jr., later Jake the Snake Roberts. And, of course, me growing up on WWF in the mid-'80s, that's Danny Davis. Oh, yes. (laughs) Dangerous. Dangerous Danny Davis. So, yeah, a a lot of... And there were a lot of times in some of the smaller territories where the prelim wrestlers, uh, if they're not booked to wrestle six, seven nights a week, they're uh, sometimes booked to work as a referee a couple of nights a week. In fact, a lot of the Portland ads tell you who the referee is going to be so it's interesting seeing you know referee gino hernandez or referee terry allen uh, on nights they're not booked to wrestle Uh, that's part of the learning experience for up-and-coming wrestlers in the territorial era and another newcomer we've talked about food items but we haven't talked about tools Here we have a a guy with a tool for a last name. Uh, He would make a much bigger name for himself outside of wrestling than in wrestling. Uh, He would basically, from what I understand, he would just go around to various St. Louis establishments, become a regular customer there, and then proclaim himself to be the artist in residence. Yeah. yeah. And this was uh, Mike Hammer, uh, also known as Wayne Hammer, also known as Mike Blood, but real name Wayne Er Er Ermaninger. I think so, yeah. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, We've got some YouTube footage of him in Florida against Killer Carl Cox and against Jack Briscoe. There's also a clip, and i got to tell you, you sent me this. It's uh, labeled as a 1981 match in St. Louis against Kerry Von Erich. And so I clicked the link, and I'm watching the video, and I see them pan over to the corner where Von Erich is. And I'm like, this is labeled wrong. That's Kevin. He's wearing a jacket. It's a much leaner than I remembered. Carrie Von Eric. This is 1981. Yeah. Um, but I mean, he's still, he is still muscular as all get out. And definitely once he takes the jacket off, uh, you can clearly see it's Carrie, not Kevin. But he's a lot leaner. He's also a lot taller than I yeah. thought Kerry to have been. But perhaps that's because Mike Hammer is shorter in stature than many other wrestlers. Yeah.
1: Oh, I thought you were going somewhere else with that.
0: No, I don't think okay, so. Okay, but, okay, okay. The, um, but yeah, so uh, Wayne uh, actually had, uh, has been interviewed on the 605 podcast, uh, episodes 68 and 69 back in 2017. So if you want to listen to those, 605pod.com and go back to the 2017 archives and look for episodes 68 and 69. But John, tell us a little bit about the post-wrestling career as an artist-in-residence of my camera. Yeah, he
1: he, you know, as a as full time career, mid late '80s, uh, is over transitioned to being a visual artist, a painter. You know, and he talked a lot about being, you know, as a kid, being into to comic books, uh, monster magazines, the old EC comics, Mad Magazine, that sort of influence. You know, and along with his uh copious intake of mind altering pharmaceuticals that really informs his art uh everything has this sort of psychedelic horror (laughs) it's like a comedic sense to it meets bad trip brown acid thing happening and it's fantastic i mean all of that all of that as as a compliment um he also be poetry. He would, he would do like, you know, I don't know what you call those like stand up poetry, poetry slams. I don't know what you'd call that, but he, you know, it's interesting hearing him talk about blading. Um, cause he was, you know, more of a, like a prelim guy. So he didn't really have many opportunities to, to blade in the ring. He, you know, I think he talked about hitting a gusher in a match against like the stomper once in Calgary, but not many others, um, outside the ring. He was a, 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 a frequent blader. Um, I think it was Joel Duke who originally told um, uh, him the story, and he started Wayne Saint Wayne started doing this um, in the bedroom, as it were, like during sexual intercourse. He'd be with you know his partner, and he'd pretend to hit his head on the, on the headboard or the wall or whatever, you know, with with each each thrust, and then at the point of climax, he would blade himself, and then proceed to drip. Onto his partner from from more than one source. Uh, And in addition to, you know, in the bedroom, he would also blade himself during poetry readings like he would occasionally have a guy come up and pretend to, uh, you know, to bite him on the forehead. And then he would just bleed all over himself as he's reading poetry to a a horrified horrified audience there was footage of that on youtube a while back but i i, I couldn't i wasn't able to find it so hopefully that's it, like it some, comes back up there further. yeah that's
0: like some andy kaufman level uh, of performance art <laughs> incorporating some yeah. you know some things from the wrestling business yeah yeah and uh yeah, wa- yeah, so yeah. one yeah. restaurant was manja italiano that's the the one where he uh, spent years painting a yeah. mural depicting the history of life in the world from the Big Bang all the way yeah. through nineteen eighty six or whatever.
1: Yeah. And I it's a lot of the a lot of the customers, the regular customers will tell that tell the story that he would just come in, start to, you know, work on the mural, and then just get distracted doing something else and just paint something for because it is it's a great it's a great story. Uh, we'll got to post links to, to, the, uh, to that stuff because it's great. And there's another link we have to post, too, of all his photos when he was a youngster taking photos at the Kiel Auditorium. And there's some great photos of, like, you know, Bobo Brazil, Dick the Bruiser, uh, everybody in, in St. Louis from the late 60s, early 70s. Great, great photos.
0: So he was always an artist in, in life uh, all the way up to his passing in, I believe, 2019, was when he yeah, passed away. young, 64 years old. Oh, that's sad. Old.
1: Such, a, such a cool guy. I really envy people who were associates friend of his in St. Louis who got to see him in his art regularly or, or doing whatever it was he happened to be doing on public access cable TV. Like I, I'm sure Wayne St. Wayne believed in some sort of greater cosmic power or something. So it's probably part of him floating around in a cloud of cigar smoke somewhere. So he's out there.
0: He's out there somewhere. So yeah, Mike Hammer, Ray Candy, Carl Fergie, three of the uh, newcomers to the territory in 1977. In addition to looking at the talent roster and the frequent partners and frequent opponents, uh, we also take a closer look at one of the feuds in the territory, which is the feud between Eric the Red and Vic Rosatani, our anatomy of a feud section on the blog actually breaks it down town by town chronologically so you can see how the feud progressed in each city and what I like about this is a lot of the towns we don't have results for on a regular basis so you can sort of look at the pattern in the towns where we do have results to see how the finishes progressed and how the stipulation matches progressed and in other towns where we might not have the finishes you can look at the matches and see okay it looks like they're following the same pattern in Monroe that they did in Alexandria for example so you can look at that on the blog and at this point in time eric the red is bringing a giant whale bone to the ring with him and this comes into play in a lot of the matches i think in one match i think pork chop cash comes to ringside and steals the bone distracting eric the red and causing him to lose to vic rossitani so pork chop cash is pork chop is stealing the bone from eric the red <laughs> We also list the calendar of known house shows. Uh, For this quarter, we actually have 140 house shows in our records. And one of the things to note, uh, particularly if you look at these calendars over time, as as we've gone from the mid-70s now through uh, the third quarter of 1977, is they are running less shows in the state of Mississippi than they had been doing previously. Whereas at one point, they actually had four weekly towns In Mississippi, in addition to spot shows, they're now down to just two regular weekly towns. Uh, The Mississippi shows were promoted by the father and son team of George and Gil Culkin, with Gil starting out as a ring announcer for his dad early in the 70s, but over time taking on more and more responsibilities behind the scenes. As McGurk and Watts are scaling back on the number of shows they were running, um... This meant less revenue for the local promoters, uh, including the Culkins. Uh If you remember in the early part of the 70s, we've covered 72 and 73. There's at least three shows a night, pretty much every night during the week. And now in 77, they're down to two. So the, the local promoters are now taking a financial hit. And at the same time, something else was happening in a neighboring wrestling territory uh, that was also in parts of Mississippi. And the confluence of these two events led to the Culkins making a bold move. So in part two of my interview with Gil Culkin, we talk about the circumstances that led to he and his father uh, deciding to split from Leroy and Bill and start their own territory. We also run down some of the towns they were running when they had their own territory. And John, remember uh, the whole reason I reached out to Gil in the first place, was because of a little disagreement i had on twitter with rip rogers who uh claimed that the culkins did not run biloxi uh but that they only ran in gulfport and uh in this interview as well as in gil's book we set the record straight on that but here's part two of my interview with gil culkin as you mentioned in your book, which is called The Mississippi Wrestling's Territory, The Untold Story, uh, you mentioned that right around this same time, and we're going into the summer or fall of 1977, something interesting happened with the rest of the state of Mississippi, because you were running um, mostly the uh, western part of the state, because the eastern towns, particularly along the southeast, were Uh, being promoted by Gulf Coast, which was the Hatfield family. But in 1977, uh, the Hatfields pretty much decided to leave the wrestling business. And Ron Fuller bought the territory, but he was not interested in the Mississippi towns, only Alabama and uh, two towns in Florida, I think Pensacola and Panama City. Does that sound about right?
2: more in expanding into the Florida-Alabama area and not into Mississippi. And so it worked out really good for us uh, when the opportunity came up that uh, we were able to work out a deal with with Lee Hills to to take over those towns. You know, that opened up everything for us from uh, Hattiesburg, which had been a regular town of theirs, and Meridian, and all the way down to the coast to Gilport, and go And Spot shows in between. Yeah, but of so, course we couldn't. We couldn't book all those at the time till we broke away and formed our own territory. But it, it just the timing just seemed to be perfect on that.
0: Right. So you were you were you know looking to increase your revenue and and were unhappy with um, what had been going on with Lee and And at the same time, you now potentially have access to all these towns. And so I guess the light bulb went off. In uh, your father's head. He said, you know what, if I run my own territory, I can have my ring being used every night of the week, I can run my own, you know, run towns every night. Um, I have my own building that, as you said, he literally built with his own two hands in Greenwood, the sportatorium. Uh, And so let's go into the towns that you were running. Uh, You've mentioned uh, most of them, but we actually uh, can go through the weekly schedule. And this was um, from late 77 to early 1978. On Monday nights, you ran Meridian and Vicksburg. You were running two towns uh, every Monday night. And you had half of your crew going to Meridian, half your crew going to Vicksburg. On Tuesdays, right. you started out at the National Guard Armory in Gulfport, which is where Gulf Coast had been running. Wednesdays right. was Jackson, Mississippi. Yes. And then on Thursdays, you went back to Greenville, and Greenville had had been run on Thursdays before, so it's back on its regular night, and you uh, added Hattiesburg. Uh, so again, on Mondays and Thursdays, you're running two different towns every night. Uh, And then on Fridays, you would tape TV at uh, the Sportatorium in Greenwood. And of course, on the weekends, you'd have spot shows in various towns. So now you're running at least six nights a week and you're taping TV Friday night. And I love in your book, you talk about how after you taped TV, everybody went back to the TV station and you recorded the local promos for each different uh, TV market. And those would all go out early in the morning on Saturday to get to each station uh, later in Saturday in the late morning or early afternoon, and they would literally pop it on and air it the next day.
2: That's right. That's right. Then a little later on, once we really had our territory to go, and we had picked up the TV stations in Mobridian and Hattiesburg and and Gulfport, or Gulfport Galaxy, and it got to where we were able to do the interviews in those towns after the matches. Okay. You know, the same thing we were doing in Greenwood. So but yeah, there was a lot of trips back and forth to the bus station, that's for sure.
0: So, uh, and in these days, so did you have to buy a seat? Like, did you put the tape on a seat in the bus or did it go in like a luggage compartment?
2: Uh, it was like the luggage compartment.
0: Okay. And then when the, when the bus would go to, you know, let's say Jackson, someone from the TV station or someone that worked for you, would they meet the bus and get the tape?
2: Uh it depends on the town. It was usually uh, someone from the TV station would get
0: it. So they would be waiting for the bus and they would go pull out a tape, run it back to the station, and they'd throw it on right after the cartoons ended and before worldwide of sports, I guess.
2: Right, it was a close call a lot of times, but, uh, and usually, we we pretty much had people in each town that would make sure the tapes got to the station when they were supposed to, and of course, we were at the mercy of the bus lines, but it all seemed to work out, I don't remember ever having one of our shows not arrive at the station,
0: well, that that's a great, especially you know, it's so funny when we think about how television works today with satellites and everything being live. Uh, just to just to think of taping a TV show and then running back to the TV station to uh, tape new local interviews, making duplicate copies of the tape, and then running them to the overnight bus. Uh, it's just a, a totally different world than we think oh, of I today.
2: But yeah, that's man, uh, yeah yeah button, yeah, know, yeah and now you just push everywhere.
0: a button, uh, and you are instantly connected to the world. But um, going back to the towns you ran in uh, early 1978, um, as I mentioned, you had been running the National Guard Armory in Gulfport. But in late 1977, a new building opened up in Biloxi, and that was the Mississippi Coast Coliseum. Right. And right. so did you guys uh, end up moving there at some point when you had your own territory?
2: Yeah, we started running in the Coliseum, and of course that Coliseum was so huge. Um, we ended up just renting half of the Coliseum, worked out a deal with them, which was still, kind of forgot how many people, how many thousands of people it seated. But, uh, yeah, we should have just stopped running the armory and started running the Coliseum.
0: Okay, yeah. In
2: hindsight, really, we probably would have been better off money-wise to stay at the armory because the overhead was so much less, you know, the pretty good overhead at the Coliseum. And we were drawing, we were making money, but we were actually making more money when we were running in the
0: armory. Do you know how many people the armory could hold?
2: Oh, gosh.
0: That's, I know. I know I'm asking a lot.
2: (laughs) Uh, I know they had bleachers. The way most armories were set up, you'd have bleachers on one side. And we would set up ringside seats, which was usually, it, it varied from town to town, but usually around 300 ringside seats. And then you put another 300 or 400 or so in the bleachers, then, uh.
0: Okay, so uh, okay. maybe maybe getting close to a 1000 but perhaps more like 800 700 800 would be the maximum.
2: Probably probably okay. pretty close.
0: Cuz I know the uh, Mississippi Coast Coliseum today it seats 11,000 and I don't think they have expanded it. So if you say you rented half the building, you had you could have had up to maybe 5000.
2: Oh yeah, I think there. there is that we
0: could put in there and for wrestling fans that watched wcw pay-per-views in the 90s beach blast 92 was in the mississippi coast coliseum so the same building that was used for a wcw pay-per-view also hosted uh the culkins wrestling mississippi wrestling territory the icw um and there were a couple of other towns that you started running regularly, if not every week, maybe every two or three weeks, and that was Macomb and, I think, Yazoo City.
2: Yeah, I don't believe... Well, yeah, Yazoo City became pretty regular uh, as far as every couple of weeks or so, or at least once a month. Uh, of course, that was in North Mississippi. We, always, we ran in the National Guard Armory there, and always drew real well there. Okay. Uh,
0: and then you switched. Yeah. Um, you switched your Monday shows. Uh, you were running Vicksburg on Mondays, but you were also running Meridian in 1979. It looks like you switched from Meridian to Laurel, and Laurel was another former Gulf Coast town um, that wasn't that right. far from Hattiesburg. Right,
2: right. Uh, okay, yeah, Meridian. So... That was always the toughest town for us to really draw for some reason. I don't know if the. Uh... We ran in the same place that the Coast Territory had been running, but we would draw a decent crowd, but we never could really get that town going for some reason. I don't know what it was.
0: Yeah, you you never know what the reason is, but a good wrestling promoter will recognize that, hey, if we're not drawing in this town, we've thrown everything we could at it, we've done every steel cage match, loser leaf town match, everything we could think of, and we're not drawing, well, then it would be smart to look for another town to run. And so perhaps that was the... uh, decision to switch to Laurel. Um, but of course, uh, as, as we get further into 1979, uh, things change and, and, uh, you end up going back, uh, to, well now just Bill Watts because Leroy and Bill are in the process of having what I would call a messy divorce, and there, I, you know, I know there's there's numerous versions of the story of how this all came about, and, and honestly, I don't even know that we'll ever get the real story because I, I've heard um, there are uh, some interviews with Mike McGurk, Leroy's daughter, um, who has uh, what his, she had heard from her father. You of course have Bill's side of the story, which uh, and which usually gets passed down to people like Jim Ross and Dave Meltzer. Um, and, I, you know, your version of the book is pretty straightforward. The offer was made and your father decided to take it. And you you say in the book that you didn't agree with it. But, uh, again, if we understand that your father was a businessman, he probably did what he felt was best for the long-term business.
2: Right. Of course, we have had uh, antitrust lawsuits. He found one against Bill and Leroy. Mm-hmm. And I talked about that in the book of one of the main reasons that they were trying to compete with us in Jackson, especially, and in Vicksburg. And I know in Bill's book, he said they were only trying to compete in the one market with us, which is not true at all because they were trying everything they could to come into Vicksburg, Greenville, Greenwood, wherever they could against us. Right. And of course, we could not go into Louisiana because Bill held the one and only booker's license that they would, or promoter's license, that Louisiana would issue. So we were kept from going into Louisiana, which Vicksburg, where I'm from, or where we were from then, you know, just right across the bridge, just Louisiana. So we were within 80 miles of Monroe and all. But there was other towns that we were interested in running, but we just weren't able to do it.
0: Uh, right. I know when, then, <laughs> when they ran against you in Jackson, they would run shows on the same night of the week. And at first they brand a building that I think was four miles away from the fairgrounds, uh, that you were, you, you kept the fairgrounds, correct? Right. And right. then they moved and to, the I think col- a college, uh, Coliseum at, at a local university.
2: Right. Right. But we had, we had, had- a really good relationship with the managers at the different buildings and coliseums. And and they tried to get the coliseum from the get go. But the manager at that time just kept saying, no, you know, I've got one wrestling group in here and I'm not interested in another. And he put them all for, gosh, several months, I know, until finally I think they mass him and everything where he couldn't he couldn't hold them off anymore, but they were running in a different building right than, than a, uh,
0: yeah, they moved to a different building oh, they yeah. eventually stopped running head to head I think they sw- they switched their Jackson to a different night of the week, so uh, in a small aspect, you won the war of Jackson because you got them to blink first. they tried to run head to head with you uh in the same town on the same night, four miles away, and I guess. Uh, it didn't prove, uh, worthwhile for them. So they moved to a different night. And I think they've, then they left Jackson for a while, uh, until of course, uh, your father went back with Bill, uh, when Bill formed Mid-South Wrestling, uh, and then you're, uh, running Jackson and Greenwood and Greenville and, uh, Biloxi, uh, as well as some other towns in Mississippi for Bill, um, and so do you have anything to add about uh the the towns you ran uh in the Mississippi territory? I you know I know you said not all of them were big hits, but in general you were drawing pretty good crowds in most of the towns you ran, correct?
2: Yeah, we were I mean wrestling was really hot back then, you know, during that time and uh we we pretty much made money every town that we ran, but you know, before the split, uh, like we talked about, uh, Leroy, I guess, was expanding, and of course, Watts, even before he bought uh, Leroy out or that part of the territory, he was doing the booking for him when and when Bill came in, and I think a lot of it had to do with Bill, and we started having problems with Bill, and uh, then they started where we would pay the guys every night, you know, cash every night. Uh, in every town, and they said, "Well, send the money to the booking office, and we'll do this. the paying." You know, we could give the guys a fifty dollars draw a night if we wanted, and, and then their expenses started going up, and of course, Bill flying around in his private jet and uh, charging more trans and more for the TV. Uh, it was just several things just all building up about the time that the Gulf Coast Territory became available. So it was just good timing on that.
0: Okay. So yeah, then when we got would...
2: Back, when we got Bill, it started out, you know, Bill just wanted to run the big towns. You know, the Coliseum the big towns. Uh, Vicksburg had run, you know, I believe we were running there a couple of weeks to start with, but He was just wanting to concentrate on the the major towns and not run the smaller towns.
0: Right, and he also started running towns... Less often, you know, most territories ran a lot of towns weekly during the week. They'd have a couple of shows, Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays. When Bill took over and started Mid-South, he starts switching that. Uh, New Orleans, of course, was a Monday night town. Baton Rouge was Tuesdays and Shreveport was Fridays, but a lot of the other towns that had previously been run weekly, like Monroe and Alexandria and Greenville and Greenwood, he starts moving those on the weekends and running them as often as he can, Um, but it's usually more like once every three, four, or five weeks, and he's also running multiple shows on Sundays in the afternoons and in the evenings, so he's running a lot more towns on the weekends, and as you said, he's looking to run Larger buildings, the coliseums, uh, you know, the high profile towns.
2: Right. And we never were able to run on Sundays in Mississippi because back that time there was an old blue law on the books that you couldn't have a sporting event on Sundays. So well, I'm sure we would have been running something on Sundays, but uh, I think it's changed since then, but uh, we could not run anything on a Sunday. That
0: thing. Right, but but if you could have, you certainly would have, because you you've got the ring just sitting there, and and uh, you know a day that the ring is sitting around with no one taking bumps on it is a day without any money in George and Gil Culkin's pocket, let alone the wrestlers. Well,
2: exactly, but well, we ended up on when we formed our own territory, we had a few more rings built, and we had one that stayed in Jackson at the Coliseum, and one that stayed in at the Colosseum in Biloxi, and one the stayed in Hattiesburg. We just had a ring in every town, pretty much, and used our original ring that we started out with for the spot shows. So yeah, we had five or six rings, seven rings floating around.
0: Do you know what happened to them after uh, you and your father stopped promoting? Did other promotions buy them, or did they just sort of fade away?
2: Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, well, there was a guy that was trying to promote some that uh, bought one or two rings, I believe. And, you know, I didn't know this actually till yesterday, and I was talking to Frankie Kane, Mephisto. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, you know, I bought a couple of rings from your Dad. And I said, I didn't realize that. Uh, but after he left, uh, he promoted, did some shows in Georgia. And so he bought two of the rings, and uh, we ended up selling all the rings we had, one way or another. I think one ended up getting lost somewhere along the line. I don't know who got, at, who got it, but that's just one of those things.
0: Yeah, the rings have a way of sometimes turning up in places you don't expect. You, know, you sell them to someone, and then a couple of years later, he sells them to someone else, and next thing you know, they're in you know California or Oregon or someplace crazy.
2: Right. I had someone tell me that they saw uh, the ring in Jackson in one of the storage buildings over there when they were there doing something. And by the time I went over to try to get it, of course, we had stopped voting for a while, but I was going to go ahead and get the ring. Uh, It was gone. I, I had no idea who got it.
0: So there you have it. And in two months from now, we will have part three of my interview with Gil Culkin, where we're going to address head-on the stories about his father and uh, the alleged reluctance to use the junkyard dog. So uh, that's the real meaty part of the interview, where we're going to ask uh, some hard questions. And, and like I said, John, the whole point of this is to get Every side to tell their story. Uh, a yep. couple of months ago, we mentioned Mike McGurk appearing on Bradshaw and Briscoe's YouTube podcast. And again, I think it's important for listeners to hear uh, versions of the stories from Watts and from McGurk and from the Culkins, and and to at least yep. have all the available information to them before making uh, their decision. So we'll talk yep. with Gil about uh, the Junkyard Dog, as well as a, a large list of uh, black wrestlers that the Culkins had booked over the years.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but now we're going to go way back in time. We're going to go back to 1964, John, which was before Ooh, baby. either of us were uh, even in even a twinkle in our parents' eyes. Yeah. I hope. Ugh. I hope. Yes. Uh, but the fourth <laughs> quarter of 1964 in the McGurk territory. And as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, the big story here is uh, the circumstances around the NWA world junior heavyweight title. Hero Matsuda had won the title from Danny Hodge in Florida in July. And then in, I believe, late August, uh, he comes here as a full-timer. And Hodge comes in a few weeks later and is now chasing Matsuda, uh, I guess with the idea being Hodge wants a rematch on his turf, whereas uh, Florida was sort of Matsuda's home base in the U.S. Here, Oklahoma, would be at Tulsa or Oklahoma City, is Hodge's home turf, and he wants a shot here. At the same time, uh, in November, two other former champions returned to the territory, and that's Angelo Savoldi and Irish Mike Clancy. Uh, Clancy was the uh, person that Savoldi beat for his first run with the title. And then I think Savoldi had a couple of quickie title switches, I think, to Mike DiBiase and Dory Funk Sr. Uh, But then he dropped it to Danny Hodge in uh, the summer of 1960, and Hodge held the title, I believe, all the way through until earlier in 1964 uh, when Matsuda won it. So now you've got Hodge chasing Matsuda, and you've got Savoldi and Clancy coming in as well and, and wanting a shot of it. And what they did here, I don't know how it played out on TV and if, or if it was different in different markets, but it sure seems like they're building up to Hodge beating Matsuda to regain the title. But before that happens, a monkey wrench is thrown in as Angelo Savoldi beat Matsuda on November 13th in Oklahoma City to win the title. So now Hodge has to chase another... Wrestler to try and regain his title. And Savoldi holds on to it through the end of 1964. So we'll see uh, as we get into 1965 in future months on this podcast if Hodge is able to capture Savoldi and regain that title. But our Anatomy of a Feud section for this time period does it a little differently. We actually look at all of the matches involving Matsuda versus Hodge, Hodge versus Savoldi, or Matsuda versus Savoldi. So you can see how the whole title picture played out. one of the interesting things when you look at this in a few towns, they would do a deal the week before the title switch where Hodge would earn a title shot at Matsuda the following week, but then Matsuda lost the title. So he would end up having Uh, to face Matsuda in non-title matches, uh, which, and now again, you know, Sometimes bookers uh, just, you know, they would change the rules. Like a lot of times when a title changes hands, the originally scheduled challenger will still get a title match against the new champion. Uh, but I guess they yep. did that, they did it a little differently this time around here um, as a way of shaking things up and prolonging the chase for the hometown hero yeah. of Danny Hodge. Now, those three wrestlers met Suda. Hodge and Savoldi were also at the top of the talent roster list with the highest average spot ratings during the quarter. And right below them was Mike Clancy, who was the other former world junior heavyweight champion. And then below him was Mike Gallagher, who was using karate, illegal oh. karate, John. Not just karate, but illegal karate. Although I think technically all karate in pro wrestling in 1964 in Oklahoma was illegal karate. Um, yeah. Yeah. Further down the cards, we have Babyface's Jerry Kozak, uh, the great Bolo, who is sort of transitioning back to wearing the mask again. He had been unmasked uh, and revealed as Al Lovelock, and then for a while wrestling as Al, quote, Bolo Lovelock. Um, But I think he's uh, slowly working his way into putting the mask back on again Hmm. all throughout the territory. We also have uh, the tail end of Carl Gotch's brief run here, Torbellino Blanco, which is Spanish for the White Tornado, and a version of the Scufflin Hillbillies team. And this version was Cousin Alfred and Willie Garrett, later Billy Garrett, uh, and Buddy Allen. And on the heel side, uh, we have Ken Lucas, Nelson Royal, Jack Donovan, and Lon Stewart. As we mentioned last month, Lon Stewart is the future Dutch Savage early in his career. Now, I got to say, I'm always surprised when I do research finding things I didn't know about certain wrestlers. And I was surprised not only that Ken Lucas was wrestling in the early 1960s, but that at that point in time, he was known as a heel. He had started, hey. I think, in 1959 or maybe very early 1960. And for the first few years of his career, he was wrestling as a heel. It reminded me of when I first, you know, started studying this territory and, and learning that Scandor Akbar was a babyface for yeah. many years in this territory. Yeah, it, it's yeah, just yeah. shocking. I mean, I think, you know, most every wrestler worked both sides at one point or another. I know there's a list circulating on Twitter of wrestlers that never switched, that were only a babyface yeah. or only heel. And most of the wrestlers on both lists are uh, were, were luchadors, but there are a few. Huh. But Ken Lucas was not one of them, as Lucas no. was a heel early on. In his career, Uh, I mentioned he debuted in Arizona, he actually briefly went to Western Pennsylvania in late late 1961. I think Don and Jim Fargo left to come work for McGurk. And Ken Lucas and I think Mickey Sharp went up to Western Pennsylvania for a little while and he spent a month in Hawaii. God it must have been great being a professional wrestler in the days of the Florida <laughs> Territory and the Hawaii Territory he said you know I think the best business decision for me is to go wrestle in Hawaii for a month it'll be uh, yeah, hard been, work but oh boy like they're talking
1: I think he talked about being wherever he was the specific place he was in Hawaii and people they were like they were other other guys were complaining he's like you know the plane only comes once a month and he's like I don't see the problem with that. He's like, I get to sit on the beach, get tan, look at women and wrestle at night. This is awesome.
0: Yeah. I think that, I don't think that was Hawaii. I think that was, he was in, I want to say Singapore or some some surprisingly exotic place that I didn't know, A, had wrestling, and B, brought in foreigners in the early 60s. Yes, you're right. But that was you're one right of them. Um, yeah. In Arizona, he held tag team titles with Mike DiBiase and also with Hans Steiner, who is Red Donovan, a.k.a. Eric Von Brauner, whose real-life brother was Doug Donovan, a.k.a. Carl Von Brauner. In Amarillo, he held tag team title with Sputnik Monroe, And in the fall of 1964, he's in Arizona teaming with Rocket Monroe against opponents including Tito Carrion, Al Kashi, Kashi, and Ron Reed, the future Buddy Colt. Uh, And then he comes here in November, and he stays uh, for about, I think, eight, nine weeks. He stays through the first week of January, and then he leaves the territory. And I think aside from a one-off, he doesn't come back until 1979 when he's here for about six weeks in the summer before the split And in between those two cents, John, between early 1965 and the summer of 1979, I would say out of those 14 years, a good 12 of them were spent in one of two places. That's either Gulf Coast or working for the Agoulas Territory. Yeah. Uh, He, of course, was also known as the trainer and original tag team partner of young Ricky Morton. And we've got some YouTube footage from Southwest in 1983 of Lucas and Morton against the Grapplers. And who are these Grapplers, John?
1: Grapplers are, of course, Len Denton and uh, Tony Anthony, the the dirty white boy, the The future 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 white boy. T.L. Hopper. Uh, T.L. Hopper. Um, It's fantastic. Uh, It's it's tagging with Ricky Morton. You know, Lucas watching this. You know, he's the older veteran guy and he, you know, he taught Ricky Morton how to be the Ricky Morton we we know and love. He taught him how to to sell, get that sympathy from the fans, uh, you know, eventually get that hot tag, taught him all the physical stuff as well as the all important emotional, psychological aspects of selling and when to get that tag. And here it's like Lucas is essentially playing the role, you know, that Robert Gibson would later play you know, in the, in the rock and roll express. Um, and it's, it's great to see that it's sort of like, he's almost fully formed, you know, as a, as a ready. I think the rock and roll express would debut probably like a month after this match. Yeah. It could have been that much later. Yeah. It's yeah. And he said he spent the majority of his career in in Gulf coast. Um, you know, and he, he was booked on top there for like an, either the single or the tag picture for, like like you said, like 20 years. And like, yeah, it's really amazing looking of... at
0: that territory because they're running many shows every night of the week. They've got uh, a lot of towns and you've got, you know, between Cowboy Bob Kelly and Ken Lucas, both of them are basically lifers and and their main events and they're, they're yeah. very rarely on the same show. They're running three or four shows yeah. a night. They're running five different live TV tapings a week, uh, yeah. according to a post Cowboy Bob Kelly made a few years back. Uh, you know, this is just this territory is just there's so little documented about it, and uh, I, I've been working to put together a, a lot of information on Gulf Coast in the early 70s, and hopefully someday soon I'll, I'll be able to talk about how we're going to get that information out there. But, I mean, yeah, Kelly was on top for decades. Ken Lucas was on top for decades. Mike Boyette, uh, as as a baby face, was there for a long time. Uh, the various Monroe brothers uh, and many, many Fargos and many, many, many masked Yankees and interns and medics are there over the years. It's a fascinating territory. Uh, You know, of course, Southeastern is known as the the territory that doesn't get a whole lot of press, but Gulf Coast was around for decades before Southeastern, and it gets even little, even less coverage than Southeastern did. We've also got YouTube footage of Lucas versus Gino Hernandez. And this is from Houston. This starts with an interview with uh, the Junkyard Dog, where Paul Bosch crowns him as uh, the king of wrestling, and uh, Gino comes in and runs him off, and then Tully comes out as well, uh, and we've got Gino and Tully talking about the Junkyard Dog on a wrestling TV show in 1982, saying exactly what you know they would say about yeah. the Junkyard Dog on a wrestling TV show in 1982, even though it wouldn't. Yeah, be okay. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's,
1: uh, it's a it's a great little ten minute match here. Um, Lucas, like Lucas's build. Uh, at this point in his career, at least, reminds me of like Ronnie Garvin or, or Pepper Gomez, like uh, built like a fireplug, you know, like not very tall but just like thick, yeah. And has that like nineteen seventies wrestler chest, you know, where he's just like, bro, you know, it's just like big, big in the chest.
0: One of my uh, one of the guys that broke me into uh, pro wrestling on the independent circuit uh, was a guy out of Western North Carolina by the name of Casey Thunder. Uh, his real name was Daryl Callahan, and when he started wrestling, he had that build. He had that, you know, really big uh, chest that the the wrestlers had. So he was originally known as Daryl the Barrel Callahan. <laughs> oh, that's great! That's uh, but name. yeah, he had he had that look of a uh, of a territorial guy from Gulf Coast or Gulus in the uh, late seventies, early eighties. And of course, Ken Lucas, like so many other wrestlers of his era, uh, a badge of honor amongst the boys was to be the subject of a lawsuit by a fan. Oh yeah. And John, uh, the January twenty-fifth, nineteen sixty-three edition of the Yuma Sun in Yuma, Arizona, uh runs with the headline Man sues wrestler for twenty thousand dollars for head pounding hurts. <laughs> yeah, he was uh, we did we didn't know you know the
1: consummate babyface, uh Ken Lucas. Definitely not uh, definitely not being
0: a, a, a baby face here on this Head pounding Uh, hurts. Yeah. Uh, You know, that's one of the things, looking at these old newspapers, the newspaper writers, so many of them had a way with words, uh, you know, alliteration and and, and stuff like that. That is just lost in today's day and age of clickbait headlines. Uh, Yeah. You know, one of my favorite ones, and this is from the 80s, and I don't even remember seeing the headline, but I heard Tim McCarver talking about it on baseball when uh, uh, the pitcher Jim Gott. Uh, had a child, the the local newspaper ran with the headline Got begot got Just <laughs> <laughs> the type of thing uh, you don't see anymore. And there's a great obituary <laughs> um on can uh, on slam wrestling. They always they're they're such a great source for articles. And it's sad that they're, you know, they're you know known for great obituaries, but they do a really good job. This, this obituary has quotes from Les Thatcher, Nick Kozak, Jeff Luce, and Scott Teal. And it's really well written.
1: Yeah. It's like, you know, on the bright side, uh, he had, I think he had some, some, some sadness, uh, near the end, uh, or not even near the end, just like in, in his life after wrestling, like losing his wife, uh, two daughters, two sons—just really, just like unfathomable sort of tragedies. But on the on the bright side, he did go back to Arizona and run like a successful lawn care business for a while, and like went back to school for food and nutrition, Len Rossi style. Got his uh, got his degree, and he told told a funny story. I think to Scott, said so he's like, "Yeah, I went back to school, got this degree, and I go to get a job, and they want to pay me four dollars an hour." So I'm not sure what that degree was supposed to, what to do for me.
0: So. <laughs> Tell me about it, Ken. Exactly. I think we all know that. Um, uh, talking about, yeah. and so, yeah, and we talk about wrestlers' deaths. Uh, the next wrestler we're going to talk about passed away in a tragic accident, uh, but uh, I believe he fell off a ladder and was killed instantaneously. Yeah. But when you learn about some of the things that happened in his life, I think his life was <clears throat> prolonged enough. He probably should have died at least twice decades earlier. Jeez. Um, some of the stories about this guy, but he was a mainstay in this territory for much of the 1960s. Um, as a matter of fact, in 1970, he is put together with Jerry Brown and they are clearly getting a push and they are going to be a a big regular tag team. But then this guy gets hurt and his replacement was a youngster by the name of Dale Hay, who of course as buddy Roberts. And, and this was the birth of the Hollywood blondes of Jerry Brown and buddy Roberts. And, and Jack Donovan before that, he was teaming up with a young Ron Reed, who of course is buddy Colt. So this was a guy between here and central States. Um, he was a mainstay for much of the 1960s. He was pushed here mm-hmm. a lot regularly, particularly in the late sixties. Uh, him and Reed are tag team champs. He's feuding with Hodge. um, He also teamed frequently with his real life wife, who was a former professional wrestler, well, a professional wrestler named Vern Bottoms, who then became Mrs. Vern Donovan and would be uh, would manage her husband as well as Ron Reed and would often get involved by hitting their opponents with her purse.
1: Yeah, which, which Watts loved. Watts loved those. Yeah,
0: Watts, Watts, well, Watts does not seem to be a fan of Jack Donovan in any way, shape, or form. And You know, this is one of those Dude. things he calls, he calls Donovan a stooge in his book. And I'm not saying that Donovan wasn't a stooge, but I have a feeling that Watts' issues with Donovan wasn't so much that he was a stooge so much that he was Leroy's stooge. Um, yeah, because, you know, one, yeah. one man's stooge is another man's trusted confidant in wrestling. Uh, you know, yeah. it is what it is. I'm not necessarily saying being a stooge is a good thing or a bad thing. It's just, it's the way it was. And, and he was loyal to Leroy for many years, which makes one of the stories we're going to talk about shocking. Um, so, but yeah. Yeah. yeah, but, uh, but yeah, Watts was not a fan, but we say that Donovan was loyal to McGurk, but apparently at one point McGurk. Didn't think he was being so loyal. Yeah, no. As the story goes, and there's a a link to this on Pro Wrestling Stories, uh, one of the two most famous incidents that Jack Donovan is known for is when Ike Eakins was allegedly brought into the territory, and this would have been 1965, because that was the only time Eakins was here, to kill Jack Donovan. Dun, dun, dun. Take care of him. Well, take care oh, sorry, of take care of him. Perhaps the, the the kill word wasn't used. But so, John, a, a little bit of the background on this for us. Yeah,
1: it's those little things. Yeah.
0: So it's like April 65. Things start to get a little little
1: fugazi for Dandy Jack here. Uh, according to, to to Jack Donovan, I want to tell these. These stories are all told from his perspective. So I'm telling him from, from his perspective. Yeah. According to Donovan, someone, quote unquote, someone in West Memphis put the word out in Oklahoma. That Donovan was planning to run opposition against Leroy. Uh, so apparently Leroy and Jack Gott, one of Leroy's referees and office guys, get Ike Eakins to come up from Florida and take care of Donovan. Uh, I'm assuming that Leroy and Gott did not know this, but Donovan and Eakins knew each other from the Carolinas. And we're close enough that Donovan said they, you know, made friends there. So Eakins comes into the territory and he and Donovan are together in like Fort Smith, Arkansas, um, right on the Arkansas, Oklahoma border there. And they're at the radio station doing promoters, uh, doing promos rather for promoter Jimmy Lott, who promoted Fort Smith on Wednesdays. Mm -hmm. While someone else is being interviewed, Eakins leans over and like, he's like, hey, I got to talk to you when we get out of here. So Donovan thinks like, oh, he wants to he wants to get together and start a tag team, go to another territory. Sounds great. Um, so after the radio spots are done, Donovan doesn't see Eakins anywhere, so he just takes off, drives off. A few blocks away, he sees Eakins on the street corner, just like flagging him down, waving his arms back and forth. So he stops, and Eakins gets in, and they drive and everything. like, are you ready for this? I'm supposed to break your leg tonight. <laughs> so they drive around, and Ike explains that earlier. told him that he had someone who was going to run opposition, and he wanted him to, to take care of it. And he tells Donovan, like, look, we've known each other for a while. You've done nothing but help me. I can at least tell you, tell you, this is what's supposed to happen. So they wrestle that night and have a double DQ finish. And the next day, Donovan goes to the office early, sees Leroy, are all nervous, twitching his thumbs. And he asks Leroy if he can get him a ride to Wichita Falls, Texas that night. So he gets uh, Bob Clay, Wichita Falls promoter, to drive him. The whole way there, and once they're there, Bob Clay is, like, quizzing him. Like, so, uh... So Jack, anything, anything happened in uh Fort Smith last night? And Donovan's just like, Oh, you're just kind of sort of playing dumb. Like is no one He's like no, oh, Yeah. Me and Eakin is the WQ Matsuda and Clancy went Broadway. I don't remember what the midgets did. Uh, and Bob Clay, anything, any, uh, any trouble in the dressing room there, Jack? <laughs> He's like, no, nothing. Nothing I know of. Yeah. It's a little hot back there. So I went out and stood by the, you know, the electric fans, uh, you know, and the next night in Oklahoma city, Donovan thanked Eakins, um, it's funny. According to like Donovan and the other stuff I read, Eakins wasn't really known as like as like a shooter or a hooker in like the Luthez sense. He was just like a very sadistic person who, if provoked, would not hesitate to pop your eye out or rip your ear or nose or break your leg, which almost kind of makes the story worse for me. And what's really super odd, like you said is that he continues to work for McGurk for, like, the next five, six months or something, and then goes back.
0: Yeah, and then goes, goes back, back to Leroy. Several times. It's just... Yeah. It's, uh, particularly since Ike had never been in this territory before. I mean, that doesn't mean Leroy never met him, but it's just... And given the stories we've heard of Leroy, you know, even though he's blind, still, you know, carrying around a gun and trying to shoot people, um, yeah. I, it seems, you know, I just wonder why would Leroy want to bring someone from the outside to do it? Especially, you know, if you don't know Ike, then you don't know if he has a history with Jack Donovan. It just seems weird to me. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying this one of of all the stories I've heard, this one on on doesn't seem as believable to me as some of the others. Now, one story that I do know is very true was an in-ring accident that happened in this territory with Donovan, where uh, both he and his opponent, Danny Hodge were stabbed uh, and really badly by a fan. So this was a match. um, It's in Oklahoma city. Hodge against Donovan, uh, Ronnie Reed, is handcuffed at ringside. And after the match is over, he of course gets out of the cuffs, but then, uh, sort goes into the ring and attacks Hodge with, uh, either the handcuffs themselves or with a chain. Next thing, you know, there's a whole bunch of fans in the ring. Yeah. Uh, from what I've read, it seems to me that Hodge was trying to protect Donovan by placing himself in between one fan with a knife and Donovan. It ends up with both, uh, Donovan and Hodge, uh, Needing many, many, many stitches. Um, One (laughs) newspaper report says Hodge received 175 stitches while Donovan received 300. Uh, A different newspaper a few weeks later says Hodge needed more than 100 while Donovan needed almost as many. Hodge is out for, I think, four weeks and Donovan is out for longer, and Donovan's wife was taken off the road too to go home with Jack and help him recuperate. So that's one of the wild uh, fan stabbing wrestler stories yeah. uh, another story of wrestler beating crap out of wrestler stories uh, is also part of jack donovan's resume and mm. um, for time purposes or we'll just direct you we'll put a link out there to these the article on prowrestlingstories.com but it's basically in the ghoulish territory and it involves an incident in the ring and then perhaps and then in a uh in one of those private rooms uh, in the back yeah uh, also it, it's a wild story. And again, these are, uh, told in Jack Donovan's words. Although this story, they get some comments, uh, I think years later from some of the other participants who are, uh, some of the top stars of the ghoulish territory at the Lynn time. Ross-y. And Jarrett too. Yeah, that's right. Rossi was part of it. Jarrett was part of it as well. So, yeah, Jack Donovan, uh, one of those crazy lives, the only in wrestling. So, again, given all the crazy things that happened to him where Ike Eakins may have been brought in to break his legs and a fan stabbed him in the legs and buttocks so bad he needed uh, at least 100 and perhaps as many (laughs) as 300 stitches, the fact that he was able to live uh, a a much longer life, Uh, I think he ended up, he finishes his in-ring career in 78. So he's he's got uh, a long period of time after afterwards where he has a post wrestling life, and then, as I mentioned, sadly passed away after falling off a ladder. but uh from yeah. what I understand, it was his death was instantaneous, so you know in many ways that is a blessing for yeah. a lot of people um, but yeah, so Ken Lucas. Jack Donovan in the territory in 1964. Next month, we're going to go into early 1965. We're also going to go back to 1973 and look at the third quarter of 1973. But before we wrap things up this month, John, we each have to uh, disseminate some knowledge. We have to spread our collective wisdom. And both of us (laughs) are going to discuss one new thing we learned this month on This Month I Learned. So, John, this month, what did you learn?
1: Well, Al, with the recent passing of Jody Hamilton, one of the stories everyone has probably heard a lot is, you know, him being the youngest person at the time uh, to have headlined Madison Square Garden with his brother Larry Hamilton, the future Missouri Marlar, against Rocca Perez May 24th, 1958. But this month, I learned that that match almost did not take place. Why, you ask? Why? Allow me to explain. Um, in 1958, Capital Wrestling, precursor to WWF, had two main offices, one in New York City run by Tootsmont, Cola Quariani, Johnny Doyle. The other, based out of Washington, run by Zickman Sr. Uh, obviously, worked together for the most part, shared talent, so on and so forth, but the two offices occasionally had different ideas and philosophies about promoting and booking. So spring 58, Toots and company are looking for a new heel team to bring in against Rock and Perez at the Garden. Last month, they brought in uh, Chris and John Tolos, Hans Schmidt, Jerry Graham. The Gates were not as good as they had been. Or have it as they had expected them to be. Uh, so, Cola Coriani was lobbying to bring in the Hamilton brothers, an unproven commodity, as the next challengers. Vince McMahon, however, wanted to bring back Roy Shire from Salt Lake City and team him up with Dr. Jerry Graham. Shire and Graham had already wrestled Rock and Perez, I think, in November '57, and were a proven draw. Cola wanted to try something new, since they'd already had that match, and they'd already brought in and cycled different partners into Jerry Graham. There was a period of intense back and forth between, you know, Vince and the New York guys, and and Vince controlled all the TV and ultimately promotion. And he's got like Phil Zacco in his ear, the whole thing. But Cole is stuck to his guns, laid out a six week booking plan for the Hamilton brothers, how he would get them over in New York. And he convinced Vince that Jody being so young would be able to hold up his end of the deal. So eventually Vince agrees and the match is booked. Uh, You know, and uh, after a few weeks in New York, Vince notices the Hamilton brothers showing up in the papers, hears a lot about the MSG advanced ticket sales, calls up Cole and says, Hey. I, I was wrong. I wasn't sure about these kids, but they look like they're they will. And in to order to guarantee a sellout at the garden, I'll put them on Washington TV. So Vince was able to admit his mistake. They did, in fact, sell out the garden twenty thousand three hundred and thirty five paid, like a sixty five thousand dollar gate. But it almost didn't happen. And that sort of power was struggle was typical of the kind of stuff that was happening in the Northeast at the time, which ultimately, of course vince Vince won out. so that was that was what I learned this month.
0: Wow, that's wild. and and uh, Jody is. I think 19 at the time of that match, right? And yeah, 19 was, years old, crazy. Yeah, 19 years old, headlining Madison square garden. When I was 19, I had been to Madison square garden a few times, uh, <laughs> to see a couple of wrestling <laughs> matches and a couple of concerts. I saw, so I saw Van Halen in Madison square garden oh, wow. on the 1984 oh, tour, which, uh, of course oh, by the time I God. saw them, it was 1985. Uh, but that was for my, uh, 14th <laughs> birthday. My brother took me to see Van Halen. Uh, and nice. then we saw a, a a double bill of White Snake and White Lion. Oh wow!
1: Yeah, I saw White Lion in Long Island. White Lion, I think it was White Lion.
0: Brittany Fox. Wow! No zebra. Know, who
1: else was there? No zebra. No, no zebra.
0: <laughs> zebra was the uh, was from Long Island. Although I think by the time they got well known, they had moved to New Orleans. But my friend, uh, Jeff G Bailey, who's a independent wrestling manager extraordinaire, reminded me that zebra got their big break from, uh, a segment on MTV called the basement tapes. Oh yeah, I remember, where yeah. They were playing, I think unsigned bands and they had like a contest to see who would win and zebra won. And they had, yeah. um, if you're not familiar with zebra, they were a hair metal act in the early eighties. They had two hits, um, they got a lot of negative publicity uh, for being a ripoff of Led Zeppelin. Uh, much like years later, Kingdom Come, and I think 8, 1989 um, got yep. blasted because the singer sounded so much like Robert Plant. Um, yep. uh, Zebra, I see the similarities, but uh, I didn't think they were that similar. But they had two hits. One was called Who's Behind the Door, and one was called Tell Me What You Want, which is legitimately one of my probably 20 favorite songs of all time. One in my top 20 yes. is Tell Me What You Want by Zebra. Huh. But I learned that a long time ago. I need to tell our listeners something I learned. this <laughs> month. Now, a couple of times on this month I've learned, I talked about unique one-time only opponents of Jackie Fargo. I think the first time mm-hmm. we did this, I talked about finding a match between Jackie Fargo and Bobby Heenan. And then yep. a little after that, I talked about what I think was a one-time only singles match between Jackie Fargo and Danny Hodge. Well, this is another one-time match involving a Fargo, but it's not Jackie. Huh. The date, March 19th, 1974. The town, Dyersburg, Tennessee. The main event, six-man tag team action on one team. The bounty hunters of David and Jerry Novak, along with their manager, Jimmy Kent, as their partner. Their opponents... Tommy Gilbert, Roughhouse Fargo, and a young up-and-coming wrestler, originally from Iran, by the name of Ali Vaziri. Yes, fans, wow. if you are ever wondering if the Iron Sheik ever teamed up with Roughhouse Fargo, the answer is hell yeah. <laughs> March 19th, 1974, in Dyersburg, Tennessee. Oh Iron goodness. Sheik and Roughhouse Fargo on the same team in the same ring wrestling is life
1: beautiful if, if, if only
0: uh, wow yeah so that's what I learned and if you want to follow me on Twitter and learn more about the things I know and the things I think I know and the things I want to know you can find me on Twitter <laughs> at Al Gets Wrestling that's Al G-E-T-Z Wrestling And of course, our blog is at www.chartingtheterritories.com. dot com. You can also find some downloadable PDF files uh, with some of my wrestling research and history at payhip.com slash charting the territories. John, what's your Twitter? I know it, but I, uh, what do are you know, in okay, case some of our listeners have not followed you yet. Shame on you. How
1: shame can on answer? you, listeners, please. I'm at John Boucher at. J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R on Twitter. Please follow me, guys.
0: Please follow him, guys. Yeah, so next month on the podcast, uh, we're going to look at the third quarter of 1973, the rise of Ken Mantell, plus the spoiler, Dewey Robertson, a young Pez Watley, and more. We're also going to go to the first quarter of 1965 and the return to the territory of a man who is said to have been Elvis Presley's favorite wrestler. John, and it's not who you might think it is. All that and more next month on Charting the Territories. Listeners, to be the first to know when new episodes of Charting the Territories, Wrestling History Mysteries, and Stats 101 are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingthepodcast.com. Charting the Territories is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Fans, we'll see you in September.